You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. And hello, everybody out there in listener land. This is the Common Descent Podcast, a podcast about paleontology, evolution, and the history of Earth and the life on it. This is episode 164, and today's topic is the boring billion. Yeah, just get your pillows ready. (laughs) This is a time period, a specific period of about a billion years during the Proterozoic Eon, so we're going back into the Precambrian before the animals and all that stuff, familiar stuff as we know it, a period of time that has been labeled the Boring Billion because it has seemed to scientists for a while that a lot of stuff just kind of stopped happening during this time. And scientists are rude, so they called it boring. (laughs) Yes, from life processes to earth processes, this interesting standstill time period in the Proterozoic. This episode, we are going to discuss what's going... We're going to condense a billion years into a single episode discussion, as is the way that we do these things. Well, we've done more before. We sure have. We're going to talk about what this time period is, sort of set the stage, what was going on before it, what was going on after it, and why it has been called boring. And what made it so boring. We'll also discuss some of the other names that have been proposed for it. (laughs) And then we'll dive into the question of why was it so boring, and was it actually all that boring after all? Boring is a matter of taste. Stay tuned. Hey, we're going to talk about this topic because it was requested. All of our episode topics are requested by an endless stream of suggestions coming from our listeners. This topic was requested by listeners Diana and Teacher. Thank you very much for those suggestions. Mm -hmm. Before we get into the bulk of the episode, some announcements beginning, as always, with Patreon. We have a Patreon. The Common Descent Podcast is funded fully top to bottom. Thanks to the donations that we get on our Patreon, there is a link in the episode description if you would like to participate. Subscribers on our Patreon get all sorts of goodies, bonus content, we do live streams, we do all sorts of cool stuff. One of the things that our patrons can get at a certain level is a shout-out right here on the podcast where we will thank them personally. This episode, we would like to welcome and thank our new patrons, Matt, Addie, and Sarah May. Thanks. Thank you so much for the support. Thank you for supporting us. Hey, dear listener, if you would like to support us, there's a bunch of ways to do it down in the episode description, social media, our Discord server, our Patreon. There's also a physical mailing address for people who want to send us stuff. And indeed, we recently got sent stuff. Yeah, we got sent the Evolution card board game. Yes, which came up in a conversation in a recent thing that we did. Mm -hmm. It was recommended to us by our listener, Daniel, and Daniel sent it to us. Yeah, I'm so excited to play this. Like, I've eyeballed this game because it's got fun, like, kind of watercolor art, and then you're just evolving creatures with different adaptations, and I'm really excited to see how it actually plays. Yeah, so we'll get together some of our nerd friends, and we'll sit around and play this game. Yeah, we'll let you know how it goes. Thank you very much, Daniel. A couple other things. Hey, we were recently on some other podcasts. We featured on a recent episode of I Know Dino. They also were on ours. And Will showed up on the podcast Sprites of Life uh, with our buddy Lucas. Yeah, lots of fun, both of them. 
check those out if you haven't. Also, things that are coming up, the month of June is around the corner, Mm -hmm. and the month of July is right after that, and those are Croc and Snake Month. During Croc and Snake Month, we will have a bunch of more Croc and Snake-themed content. We will have some bonus episodes. We'll have special stuff going on on our social media and our Discord. And like last year, we will be getting help from our supporters to make donations towards Croc and Snake conservation. Stay tuned for more details and information coming up in future episodes. Mm -hmm. One more thing. There is a new science podcast out in the world coming out around the same time that this episode releases called Little Curiosities with Kendall Long. And they reached out to us and asked us to spread the word to our listeners. So here's the word. Little Curiosities is a science podcast hosted by Kendall Long, who has spent her whole life exploring sparks of curiosity like, what is the color green and how does it help give life to so much on our planet? Each week, Kendall takes it upon herself to bring listeners on an adventure of research and scientific exploration. Her mission is to help other like-minded, curious people discover everything there is to know about these little mysteries and gain a greater sense of the world around us. You can follow and listen to Little Curiosities with Kendall Long on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to podcasts now. Yeah, I very much like the premise that they're going with, because that's very close to what we started this podcast with of anything could be made into a documentary. Sure, sure. All Curiosities Are Worth Investigating is a very similar vibe, and I like it. Yes, so best of luck to this new podcast, and if it sounds like something listeners you'd be interested in, check it out. And with that, we are ready to move on to our first main section of the episode, and that is the news. Every episode, we gather up some news from the science of paleontology and related investigations to share with you, keep everybody up to date, and examine some of the leading edge of scientific discovery. Will, news. I have news about bats. Oh, great. We never get to talk about bats. We did a whole episode about bats. That was 59. But (laughs) other than that, we rarely talk about bats. Which is why I was like, I want to talk about this news. (laughs) This is uh, research describing a new species of bat that is also currently the oldest fossil bat. Oh, cool. Uh, Not by a huge leap and bound, but still technically the newest, oldest fossil we know to date. (laughs) The newest, oldest bat. (laughs) I know what you mean, but there you go. (laughs) This is research by Tim Reitbergen et al. in Plus One, and the article is by Riley Black in Smithsonian Magazine. That article will be in the blog post, also linked in the episode description. Absolutely. This fossil is from the fossil lake deposits of Green River Formation in Wyoming. This is a well-known Eocene Lagerstätte, which is those really well-preserved fossil sites we've mentioned before. This one is about 52 million years old, and... Bats are not a new thing here. Uh, In the last 50 years of digging at this site, they have found about 30 fossil bats, but only two species. Uh, So a fairly small diversity of bats there, which is not hugely surprising. We talked about in the bat episode that bat fossils are very rare because bats are very small, delicate, and often live in places that don't fossilize well, like, you know, forests and stuff. So bats are fairly rare in the fossil record. So whenever one's found, it's notable. This one is actually two skeletons, two specimens, uh, the first of which was not found at the site, but was noted in an online sale from a private fossil collector. Huh. And one of the researchers saw it and noted that based on the color of the limestone, the cream-colored limestone and the tan-shaded bones, 
It was almost certainly from that formation. Yeah. Green River Formation has a very distinctive look to the fossils and the sediment. So they noted that it was a bat, which is always notable. And once they got it, they noted it was notable, that it was different, which got their attention that this might be something different than what had been found as of yet. And whilst looking for comparison specimens, they found a second specimen in a museum collections. Oh, cool. So both of these were actually found already out of the site and not yet identified as something interesting. These two specimens, once they were studied, they compared them to the other fossil bats from the site, including other old bats and more recent. And they showed to be different enough to be a new species. They named this new species Icronicterus gunnelli. And through their analysis, were able to place it in this group, but also compare it to some other similarly aged bats, both from the site and elsewhere, and do some repositioning. First thing they noted is that the Green River bats make up two families, the Icronicteridae and the Oniconicteridae. They also found that these two groups grouped out separate from other old world lineages and other ancient bats. So that these two groups together away from other ancient bats. There are other species of Icronicterus, two that come from France and India, way different parts of the world. And in this study, by while examining those and comparing them, they found that they don't seem to share features as much upon real analysis. And this is important to note because if they are one genus then that means this genus spread out across the world very early on in bat evolution. But these two species, the France and India ones, don't seem to hold up upon this analysis, so they are suggesting that they should be removed from the Icronicterus lineage. Gotcha. So there's more diversity among these early bats than realized. Precisely. Ah. So this all indicates that the Green River bats are a distinct lineage, mm -hmm. that even though they are multiple groups, they are a separate lineage, and that the radiation and diversity of bats early on in their evolution, because these two bats are currently the oldest fossils we have, so we're, as far as fossil-wise, as early as we currently <laughs> can yes. get. The, the, the first bats. This is a worldwide and diverse assemblage of bats mm -hmm. already roughly at this time. Yeah. So bats spread out and diversified fairly quickly. Which could mean that we are missing a whole bunch of earlier bats during that time of diversification, which would not be surprising mm -hmm. because bats don't fossilize well. Or that bats, after originating, diversified and spread out very quickly, which also wouldn't be surprising because we see that in a lot of groups, especially flying groups. Yes, and it absolutely could be a little of column A, a little of column B. That yes. very likely the origin goes back farther than what we have, but also it seems that they did diversify and spread out quickly. Mm -hmm. So bats, the, the early history is still a mystery, but yes. we're getting a little more info on what might have been happening there. Bats are extremely well-suited to not leaving a good fossil record <laughs> of their early evolution, even more so than most groups. And from everything they were saying, these bats are still bats, like... We mentioned that in the bat episode, the earliest bats are not transitional. They're not pseudo bats that are start. Nope, they're just full on bats. They did note that these were a little bit smaller than the other two species mm -hmm. already known at the site and a little stouter. So oh, slightly so different bat. 
I wonder if that means they were living slightly different lifestyles. Mm-hmm. So you had partitioning different ecological roles met by these different bats. Which would absolutely make sense. Well, very cool. So we will just ever so slightly push back <laughs> the oldest known fossils until we finally start finding transitional things for bats. Here's the next for for 52 and a half million years. Right. <laughs> just ever so oh slightly. Boy. Well, that's super cool. Very exciting. Hopefully there's more research being done in the Green River Formation. Yes. Yeah. There's more bats. Seems well, like a good place to be. We also mentioned in episode 160 about that the Messel Pit is full of bats. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the Eocene is really a great time for studying bats. Well, speaking of groups of animals that we never get to talk about on the podcast, I've got a news about dinosaurs. Uh, that's a joke. <laughs> about dinosaurs all the time specifically uh this is about sauropod dinosaurs these are those the long neck long tail dinosaurs more specifically a new discovery that helps to flesh out our understanding of the evolution of titanosaurs one of the groups of sauropods this is research by Stephen porapat et al in royal society open science and we will link in the blog post to an article on the conversation by Stephen porapat Titanosaurs are a specific group of sauropod dinosaurs. They were particularly diverse and widespread during the Cretaceous period. They also include some of the biggest dinosaurs and land animals to ever have lived. Argentinosaurus is in this group, some of the really big ones. However, one of the things with titanosaurs is that most of them are not actually known from very good fossil remains. Yes. They're often very partial remains. Tons of them are known from one specimen. And especially, they are usually missing their skulls. Yep, yep. This is not unique to titanosaurs. This is a thing that sauropods, this often happens with sauropods. Yeah. Because they have bodies made of giant, bulky, huge bones and then little skulls. Yes. And the skulls tend to not fossilize very well. They tend to come apart from the rest of the bones very easily. So a lot of your favorite famous sauropod dinosaurs either are still or were for a while headless. Yep. In our reports. This is, this is why you see so many pictures of when people talking about like new sauropod discoveries. It's them sitting next to a femur. Yes. Because <laughs> that may be all we have of some right. of them. <laughs> uh, this is a real hiccup because skulls are super important for tracking the evolution of groups, particularly early evolution. Among titanosaurs, there have recently been some important discoveries of skulls that this paper noted. Skulls of Tapuyasaurus from Brazil and Sarmientosaurus from Argentina have both been reported recently and assessed as really useful for interpreting patterns of titanosaur evolution. This study reports the first well-preserved skull of a different titanosaur. This is Diamantinosaurus matildae. This is a large dinosaur. Uh, One of the articles put the estimate for the full body size at about 25 tons. Uh, which is no Argentinosaurus, but that's still a, a hefty fella. I'll still get out of its way. Diamantinosaurus comes from the late Cretaceous Winton Formation of Queensland, Australia. The fossil itself, which has been named Anne, apparently, mm-hmm. was discovered in May and June of 2018. Originally, when I was writing my notes, I wrote summer of 2018, and then I had to correct myself because this was discovered in Australia. <laughs> this species, a so Diamantinosaurus, Uh, is known previously from three other specimens, but not very much, not very complete skull remains. This new specimen includes a well-preserved skull, including most of the left side of the skull, 
as well as some ribs, vertebrae, bits of the hip, back legs, and foot bones, which I think, if I read the paper correctly, is another part of this dinosaur that we haven't had very much before. Convenient. The skull is distorted and misshapen, uh, not naturally, because it was fossilized and all smushed. So they CT scanned it and surface scanned it to get an inside and out 3D look at the whole thing, and then were able to reassemble it digitally. Nice. And they made some notable observations. One that I thought was pretty fun is that they were able to, because they CT scanned it, examine the replacement teeth in the premaxilla. So dinosaurs, like modern crocs, often had teeth in the mouth and then, uh, you know, sort of the stacked cones of teeth ready to come in after the active teeth popped out. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. They noted that this look at the teeth helps to confirm the identifications of previous teeth that have been assigned to this dinosaur. That now they can say, yes, those teeth are in fact a Diamantinosaurus. Here are some in the skull. Yes. Also, they made the interesting note that there are only two replacement teeth per socket, Mm -hmm. which they described as suggesting it had a relatively slow replacement rate. That in other dinosaurs, there will be a lot more teeth that you can see ready to come in. So this may have been a slower replacer. Yeah, which may mean that they're not using their teeth as heavily, you know, so they're not wearing them down or, or, or breaking them or something. Could be. But the big results are how this helps us place this dinosaur in the grand scheme of Titanosaur evolution. They noted that the skull has many features that are very similar to Sarmientosaurus from Argentina, which suggests a close relationship between the two despite the fact that they are in Argentina and Australia, (laughs) right? This is from a time where you had connections between these southern continents. So this is a group of titanosaurs that was spread across the southern portion of the world. They also noted that the general features of both of these dinosaurs, looking at the skull and other parts of the body, support the previous suggestion that these are an early branch of titanosaurs. Okay. That these come from the very base of the titanosaur family tree. They said either a very early branch of titanosaurs or just outside of titanosaurs. Right, right. These could actually end up not technically being titanosaurs. That they would be titanosauriforms just outside the, the true group. This means that these dinosaurs in particular could be very helpful at giving us insights into what features were present at the very earliest parts of Titanosaur evolution, and therefore a really helpful insight into the origins of this group that eventually went on to become some of the most impressive dinosaurs in existence. Very cool. It, it is always a testament how missing a, a, you know, consistently missing a single element of an organism or a group can rob us of so much information that when you do find it, you get stuff like this where it's like, here's this laundry list of things we learned mm-hmm. about this animal and this other animal and this group. Yes. Because we finally got to look at its face. And that that just can completely change a bunch of aspects of the story because now we have context that we didn't before. So, like, it is always exciting when you find something like this. Uh, and, like, sauropods. So that's awesome. Like, Yeah. I... I, I I always am excited when we find more, especially of like cranial material, because we have so many questions already about what you were doing with your body shape. 
Yes, that it's not fair that we are missing pieces. Yes, and so, like, (laughs) especially the piece that might help us answer why you had such a long neck, the part that's at the end would be very helpful. So they made the note, I think this was in the article on the conversation, that this may also be a good indication that the Winton Formation is a place to keep looking for stuff. Yeah, yeah. These formations are going to be potentially the source of yet further information about titanosaur evolution. Oh, that's exciting. Way to go. Neat. Oh, cool. My next bit of news is also about uh, uh, fossil faces, uh, because it's about Dunkleosteus, the ancient giant armored predatory fish, which we only have its face, so Mm -hmm. that's why it's about faces. But this research is also following up another news we did a couple episodes back. This is research by Russell Engelman, in Pierre J, who was the same researcher who did the piece on the Chunky Dunk, the sure. research that found that according to measurements from the front of the eyes to the gill slits on fish, that Dunkleosteus likely was much stouter and shorter than previous estimates. Right. That is a new that news we discussed in some recent episode. Probably the last. Oh, that's episode 161. Now we discussed that in episode 161. Yeah, I had to go look because I could not remember. <laughs> I, yep, nope. I can tell you what the topic was. I don't know what the news is were. This is also, uh, the article we'll be linking to is a press release from Pierre J in phys.org. So this time they're looking at the size of Dunkleosteus based on how we have estimated previous sizes to do very okay. similar to their previous research, which was saying, okay, we don't have full Dunkleosteus, but we do have full smaller Arthrodire placoderms, mm-hmm. smaller armored fish, similar and related to Dunkleosteus, but not the same kind of fish. But we have full bodies, so we can test how well do these measurements fit to them, and if that's true, how does what does that tell us about Dunkleosteus? Right. Previous estimates for lengths range between five to eight point eight meters, so. 15 to 25-ish feet. Most of those were predicted off of the proportions of the upper and lower lower jaw, the width and the size of the jaws, based off of today's large sharks. Right. And that recent research we discussed was an estimate using those methods you just discussed that suggested Dunkleosteus is on the smaller side of previous estimates. Exactly. What they did in this research was they said, okay, if we use that same technique for those same smaller arthrodires, what size would it say for them is using shark mouths at all accurate for Mm. placoderms. So the last one was using a new method for Mm -hmm. estimating sizes. This is saying, here's the typical method we use. How does that actually hold up? We're running it through a very similar process we did with that new method. Yeah. And they found some very interesting results. With some new, very fun artwork (laughs) that I'm sure some of you might have seen. They use the mouth measurements based on sharks and those small arthrodires, Dunkleosteus, as well as other fish, just to see how well this measurement held up across and see if this was a reliable, you know, basically if it held up to this scrutiny. And they found that, no, it really does not seem like it does. Hmm. There were three main reasons that it doesn't seem... Like, it's going to give accurate lengths. First, arthrodire mouths are much larger for their body size than sharks today. Okay. And that Dunkleosteus has an unusually large mouth 
for even, a placoderm. Even for a placoderm. Yes. So, like, <laughs> even the smaller Arthur dyers might not be fully comparable, you know, and, and accurate representations. Because mm-hmm. Dunkleosius has a big, big mouth for its size. When they use the shark mouth proportions on those smaller placoderms, the smaller Arthur dyers, they produced lengths that were two to two and a half times bigger than the actual fossil. Oh, wow. Way too long. Yeah. And if using that method on Dunkleosius, what they came across was an absurd body shape. They noted that it was very long. They called it eel-like. Oh, weird. With a very small head compared to that body size. Proportions so extreme that they are even more extreme than many eels alive today. (laughs) And that's what it would have to look like in order for that proportion to match up. exactly. Gotcha. The long shape is not seen in any other arthrodires, mm-hmm. nor just most fish in general. Like, right. it's a very unusual fish shape. So it is a very unlikely thing mm-hmm. to to be really how this fish was shaped. They noted that also it would likely make their gills too small for their body, and they oh, probably yeah. would have suffocated if they were actually shaped like this. <laughs> All of this coming together to make those estimates of 5 to 8 meters both mathematically and biologically unlikely. Yeah. Just... That does not seem to hold up. Those are likely overestimates. Once again, lining up with Engelman's previous research. Right, the chunky dunk. Mm-hmm. And again, they noted that previously we've often compared Dunkleosius to great white sharks, that right. they were potentially filling a similar niche in those early oceans, but that once again we are shown that proportionally probably not shaped the same. Mm-hmm. And... That the disproportionate size of the mouths in Arthrodires likely means that they were feeding differently. That they could take on larger prey for their body size than a large shark today could. Yeah. Because they had bigger tools for the biting, which may mean that they were not behaving like sharks. And that using that as an analogy might not might be more misleading than it is helpful. You know, just that. The more we look at them, the more they seem to not really be like sharks. They were quoted saying it might be more accurate to describe them as a mix of shark, grouper, viperfish, tuna, and pariba. Sounds like we should just give them their own name. Yep. (laughs) Like, they are (laughs) their own kind of fish. Yeah. So, both researches now are pointing to Dunkleosteus, at least, being a very distinct large predatory fish, not just an early armored giant shark. Yeah. I think this is a really useful and important note to be making about Dunkleosteus, but just about paleontology in general. It is so easy for us. And it's so important in paleontology to find comparisons. There's a reason that we always do that because the modern ecosystems, modern animals that we have today are our basis of comparison for understanding fossil life. So it's very natural and it's very helpful to be able to go, yes, that animal did X, Y, Z like this modern animal. But always important to keep in mind where that can mislead us. It's very tempting to look at, for example, a big predator and say, all right, that is a predatory animal. It is about this size. It lives in this habitat. Therefore, let us compare it to a similar animal with a similar lifestyle and a similar size today and overlook the fact that habitat lifestyle and body size are not the whole picture mm-hmm. and that you can have animals that are the same size or the same general lifestyle 
But if they're proportioned different, if they have different adaptations, if their environment is different in important ways, it can mean that they really aren't very comparable. Yeah, well, it's kind of like how you can see the same group of animals in different ranges Mm -hmm. behaving differently because they don't have salmon runs in this area. So brown bears don't behave the way that you see them where salmon's available. Like, you can't just assume that they're going to have the same behavior. Right. I also very much appreciate this research as a showing of the other side of these kinds of investigations and processes in paleontology and science in general, that the first research was a new technique and new way to look at it. But if the old technique still gave us good measurements, then that does not mean we should ignore it. Like we have a conflict. Yes. So you have to then go test the old information, the old ways of doing it with your new approach and see if they still hold up or if they are not standing up to scrutiny. Right. And that one-two punch approach to it makes the results, makes those inferences seem much more strongly supported, much more, much sturdier. That's not to say this is the end of the discussion. There will surely be more research to come. But two different analyses using two different methods coming to similar conclusions is a really strong case scientifically. Yes, and you don't often get to hear this side of things. Like, this doesn't often make the news because it's not a new technique or a new way of looking at it. It's we're retesting stuff we've already used, but Mm -hmm. with new insights. This made the news because it's Dunkel Yes, and the artwork for it showing that proportion is hilarious (laughs) is so stretched out and weird and i saw one person that had put a picture of the stretched out one and a person holding it by the head and the tail and then letting go and it's shooting forward as the scrunched up chunky dunk (laughs) art from the first research (laughs) we like to have fun with famous fossil animals like this well that's super cool i well it's always we we've talked on the podcast before about how certain fossil groups get all the attention and there are sort of these rock star fossil animals And on the one hand, it can be frustrating because all the attention is going towards one particular thing. But in cases like this, it can bring attention to an aspect of scientific investigation that we might you might not get for other groups of organisms. Yes. So other things that don't make headlines just by virtue of the name of the animal by itself. So this is a really cool uh, example of a couple of studies. Absolutely. Well, we've got one more bit of news. My first news this episode was about dinosaurs. My second bit of news is also dinosaurs, kind of a little bit. (laughs) Mainly it's about bugs, and especially it's about symbiotic relationships in the fossil record. All right. This is research by Enrique Peñalver et al. in the journal PNAS, and we will link in the blog post to a press release by the University of Oxford in phys.org. Back in episode 133, we talked all about symbiosis, symbiotic relationships, and we talked about some of the ways that we can identify them in the fossil record. Usually this is indirect inference, because it is very rare for us to get direct evidence of two different organisms interacting in a symbiotic relationship in the fossil record. The paper starts off with the very well-stated point that vertebrates and arthropods, so vertebrates, your bony animals, arthropods, your exoskeleton bugs and stuff, are two of the most commonly fossilized groups of animals, and they are almost never fossilized together, even though they have a lot of very tight relationships 
with each other. That is a really interesting point. This paper specifically is focused on the symbiotic relationships between bugs and theropod dinosaurs. Today, there are tons of symbiotic relationships between bugs and our modern theropods, birds. But in the fossil record, this paper noted only two previous examples of direct fossil evidence actually showing bug and bird or dinosaur feather together actual symbiotic relationship. Uh, One tick from the Cretaceous and one chewing lice, example of chewing lice from the Eocene, both of which are parasitic relationships. Yep, yep. Ectoparasites, bugs crawling on feathers and eating stuff. This study describes a new example that not only is exciting because it's a new example, but also appears to not be a parasitic example. These are fossils in amber specimens from the early Cretaceous of Spain, about 105 million years ago. The amber specimens contain the molts of beetle larvae. So not the beetle larvae themselves, but their molted exoskeleton. So, you know, like the snake skin after it sheds, or like your spider molts if you keep tarantulas. Yes. Uh, Molts often become fossils because they're just sitting there. These beetle larva molts are surrounded by portions of downy feathers. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The feathers are dinosaur, because that's what has feathers. But the authors were unable to identify if this is bird or non-bird dinosaur. <laughs> so, some kind of theropod dinosaur, early Cretaceous. Notably, not only are these molts in and amongst these feathers in the amber, there is some feeding damage on the feathers, and they noted tiny coprolites preserved with the molts and the feathers, little poops, which suggests that not only were these beetles likely chewing on these feathers, but they were feeding, molting, and pooping all around these feathers, which is strong support for the idea that these were beetles that were living among these feathers. Yeah, if you find uh, dirty clothes and a used toilet <laughs> and a, right. a half-eaten meal, that person probably lives there. Somebody lives there. <laughs> like when the detective shows up at the house and they find those, they're like, someone's been living here recently. <laughs> someone's been eating my feathers. This inference is also supported by what type of beetles they are. They identified them as dermestid beetles. Oh. These are sometimes called skin beetles or hide beetles. We are very familiar with dermestid beetles, since these are the beetles that we use at the university for cleaning the flesh off of bones for preserving specimens. Dermestids in the wild are often found today inhabiting the nests of birds and mammals. Okay. These beetles tend to be keratophagus, feeding on shed fur or feathers. So they'll live in nests and eat the fur and feathers coming off of the animals living in the nests. Oh, this makes them symbionts, but not parasites. Parasites feed on a host to the detriment of the host. This is likely either commensal because the beetles are getting food and the other animals don't care, or possibly even mutualistic if the beetles are helping to clean up the nest. Yeah, if they're eliminating that that shed material. That this is a benefit to both sides, potentially. Cool. The fact that these amber specimens preserved the beetles, the feathers, their poops, suggests that these collections of items were either on or near a tree, 
which makes it seem pretty likely that this could have been a nest mm-hmm. that we got a piece of amber that collected some stuff, you know, a piece of uh, a bit of sap resin that collected some stuff in a nest and then hardened into amber and preserved it. This would all line up with the idea of dermestid beetles living in the nest of a either bird or close to bird dinosaur. If this is the case, this is really cool because number one, this is evidence of beetles interacting with feathers 105 million years ago. So a relationship that has been around for a long, long time, but also a very rare example, particularly for dinosaurs and bugs, of a symbiotic relationship, a non-parasitic symbiotic relationship in the fossil record. That's so cool. Like, if you had just said uh, amber with insects and feathers, I would immediately have been like, all right, yeah, so like, you know, parasites in the feathers. Sure. You know, something lice-ish, you know, chewing on them or chewing on the animal. Well, like the tick example. It's like, yeah, no, that is a bloodsucker. That's what that does. But for them to be... On on shed feathers is a, is a very interesting uh, scenario. That's really really interesting, and a very much makes me want to know like how how tight is the relationship between dermestids and and nest makers today? Like, mm-hmm. is, is that a strong symbiotic relationship, or is it is it a more right? Like, are they are they always there? Is yeah. it like you find a nest, you are. Almost guaranteed to find some domestic beetles in there. Yeah. Or is there like a split up of domestic species based on, you know, group like, right, right, are right. there different ones for different groups of birds or mammals and birds? Like, mm-hmm. and that I don't yeah, know. Yeah, exactly. Like if it's been going on this long, yeah, it has it had time me. to get really specific? Yes. That's very cool. Very cool. So beetles have been nominon feathers for a hundred million years. Very cool stuff. Yeah. Hey, all of that news was very interesting. So. Let's slow it down. Let's slow it down. (laughs) Let's change gears, shall we? Let's spend the rest of the episode being boring. So get get your blanket. Get 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 a cup of tea. This episode might take a few sessions of listening. Just just get cozy. It's going to be a dull one. That's not true. This episode's (laughs) going to be awesome. We're going to talk about The Boring Billion, which, a little bit of a spoiler right now, Total misnomer. Yeah, yep, yep. We will get into that more later. Uh, This discussion is anything but boring. Stay tuned after the break. We will move out of our typical realm of discussion in the Phanerozoic Eon, way back to the Proterozoic, and maybe even beyond, to discuss this extremely interesting boring time period. A billion boring years. Stay tuned. Our discussion for this episode focuses on a time period that has been called the Boring Billion. This conversation is going to take us back to a time period in Earth history that we don't normally talk about here on the podcast. Because it's so boring. Back, well, because it's boring. <laughs> well, it's re- it's back when we get to measuring things in billions. Yes. <laughs> which we usually don't get to in this podcast. So before we get into the specifics, a review of Earth history to put us in position. The Earth is about 4.5 billion years old. The history of the Earth is traditionally split into four eons of time. The Hadean Eon, 
from roughly four and a half to four billion years ago. This is the time period when everything was bad and nothing was alive, apparently, maybe. <laughs> After that is the Archean Eon from four billion to about two and a half billion years ago, followed by the Proterozoic from two and a half billion to half a billion, about 0.5 billion. And then finally, the Phanerozoic Eon is the last 540 or so million years, the last half a billion years of Earth history. The Phanerozoic Eon is the eon where all animal, plant, etc. life as we know it has basically been limited to. The Phanerozoic Eon is where almost every discussion we have on this podcast takes place. Because it's basically the entirety of the fossil record. It's where all the good fossils come from. Before that, it's almost entirely microbes. And indeed, we are not talking about the Phanerozoic Eon this episode. Our discussion is actually going to focus on the Proterozoic. This is that stretch from half a billion to two and a half billion years ago before the rise of modern style ecosystems with plants and animals as we know them. So let's set the stage with the Proterozoic first by talking about the not boring parts of the Proterozoic Eon. The early Proterozoic featured a handful of really exciting events. Very famously, the Great Oxidation Event, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which took place between two and a half and two billion years ago in the early part of the Proterozoic. We did a whole episode about this, episode 75. This is a time where we see a dramatic rise in oxygen levels in the atmosphere and in the oceans, up to a significant percentage, like 10% or so, of modern oxygen levels. It is also around this time that we see the Huronian glaciation mm -hmm, mm -hmm. around that same period, which is potentially the world's first snowball Earth episode, a massive global glaciation event. We talked about snowball Earths in episode 124. During the early Proterozoic, we also see the formation of the supercontinent that is called Nuna or Columbia, possibly the first true supercontinent on Earth. We talked about supercontinents in episode 141, and we talked about this. And somewhere in that early Proterozoic time, we see the rise of eukaryotes, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the appearance of complex celled life. Eukaryotes are the cells that have cell organelles within them, nuclei and other organelles. Those are the kinds of cells we see in animals, plants, fungi, and our closest relatives, as opposed to earlier types of cells like bacteria. All that is early Proterozoic stuff within that first half billion years or so of the Proterozoic. If we go to the end of the Proterozoic Eon, we see another snowball Earth period, a series of ice ages in both these cases. The Cryogenian period, which happens roughly between 700 and 600 million years ago. Global glaciations, again, we talked about that in the Snowball Earth episode. It is also toward the end of the Proterozoic that we see the first true, complex, multicellular, widespread, animal or animal-like life. The Ediacaran biota. Yup. Which we talked about in episode 31. Complex, large, animal-like life starting around 630 million years ago. So at the start of the Proterozoic and at the end of the Proterozoic, we have these major events in global climate, in tectonics, in life, so stages of the evolution of life. And then there is this stretch of time in between 
that is notable for not having major events. This stretch of time from about 2 billion years ago to about 1 billion years ago, which has been called the Boring Billion. <laughs> which is such a catchy name. It is a very catchy... Just you wait, there's going to be a lot of names in this episode. That this, this place has been called a number of things. In fact, let's go through a little bit of sort of the history of what this time period has been labeled and how it has gotten this reputation as the boring part. A lot of papers that discuss this time period reference to certain earlier discussions that kind of put this thought out there very famously. One that is repeatedly cited is a 1995 study that was comparing different time periods in Earth history and specifically looked at the Mesoproterozoic, that's the middle era of the Proterozoic, which is about 1.6 to 1 billion years ago. This 1995 paper famously called it the dullest time in Earth history, <laughs> which is a very rude thing to say. <laughs> Specifically, they point out that in comparison to other major eras of Earth history, there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence for major shifts in evolution of life and environmental shifts in geologic shifts compared to other periods of time. That paper famously uh, paraphrased Winston Churchill <laughs> in saying, It may be fair to say about the Mesoproterozoic that never in the course of Earth's history did so little happen to so much for so long. <laughs> the phrase boring billion is typically attributed, I've seen it attributed a number of times, to a paleontologist named Martin Brazer, who used it a little bit more broadly to specifically refer to between 2 billion and 1 billion years ago, citing little change. Specifically, a lot of older studies were looking at geochemical changes over time, and the boring billion was a phrase coined to point to a time where things looked pretty stable and unchanging. I've also seen the phrase boring billion attributed to a 2006 study by Heinrich Holland, who used the phrase boring billion, referring to from 1.85 to 0.85 billion years ago for similar reasons. Okay. So boring billion has been in use for the last two to three decades or so, it sounds like. There have been other names. A study in 2013 used the phrase barren billion Ooh. for 1.8 billion to 0.8 billion years ago because of a lack of evidence of significant climate shifts. Okay. That, again, you had these major glacial periods and before and after this billion-year time period, but not very much in between. They called it the barren billion, which does not seem to have caught on quite as well. <laughs> well, it, that, seem, that seems so much harsher. It just <laughs> seems really, it's real mean. <laughs> and then a 2014 study referred to the time period of 1.7 to 0.75 billion years as Earth's Middle Ages. <laughs> Which, again, for the same reason as just this stretch of time where there just wasn't a lot of obvious big events happening in the geologic record. As well, Earth was just stuck in a dead-end job. Right, it was just not having a good time. Going nowhere, spinning its wheels. Bought a bought a really expensive muscle car. Well, that's what happened after. That's, that's, <laughs> that's true. That's, the crisis is... That's the Ediacaran biota. Yep. And we got a bunch of animal life. <laughs> and we got our stuff together with the Cambrian explosion. <laughs> and finally, 
<laughs> started living life. These days, the boring billion, the term boring billion is usually used to refer to roughly 1.8 billion through 0.8 billion years ago. Again, before that, major oxygen shift, major glaciation uh, around the start of that, the first eukaryotes. After it, major glaciation, the rise of animal life, and then as you just pointed out, leading into the Cambrian explosion and animal life as we know it. And for anyone thinking like, yeah, but before life, it sure was boring. No, the planet was doing a bunch of stuff as it was. Well, and there was tons of prokaryotic <laughs> yeah, life yep. earlier on in the Archean. And the, now the other thing that is worth pointing out is that if we get earlier than the Proterozoic, rocks become a lot rarer to find mm-hmm. and it becomes a lot harder to specifically identify major events. Yes. But there are still major events attributed to earlier on, earlier in the Archean eon. So this boring billion has really stood out over the years as this time where just there wasn't a whole lot going on. And indeed, let's go through what exactly it is that seems to have not been happening. Yes. First, we'll go through the evidence of, all right, what what was actually supposedly boring about this? And then later, we'll talk about what that might mean for this time period and also how much this label actually holds up. Because here's a little bit of a spoiler, there has been plenty of recent research that indicates that this might not have been as boring in these regards as it has been labeled. Yes. So, our list of boring stuff. For one thing, oxygen levels. There was this major shift in oxygen at the beginning of the Proterozoic, and then we see oxygen fluctuations again late. But there is evidence throughout this boring billion period for just consistently low oxygen levels in the atmosphere and in the oceans. There's a lot of sedimentary deposits that seem to show the classic geochemical signs of low oxygen levels. In fact, there was a 2014 study that gets cited a lot that measured magnesium levels in the ancient sediments and found consistent results for very low oxygen at about about a thousandth of modern oxygen levels, which is surprisingly low. Researchers have also pointed out for a long time a lack of banded iron formations. Oh. The banded iron formations are these famous geologic formations that you see, especially in older rocks, that are formed when iron precipitates out of oxygenated waters. And that there is this this boring billion period is lacking these. Another indicator of very low oxygen levels, but also consistently low oxygen. Yes, that there's not fluctuations for you to get any change in that. Right. To get those bands, you just not getting them. On a similar note, there is also, apparently during this time, very stable climate. There's no evidence of major glacial events, again, in contrast to the major glaciations on either side. Research has noted a stable, relatively unchanging record of carbon isotopes, which usually will fluctuate with fluctuating climates. So there seems to have been consistent low oxygen and no major climatic shifts. Many have pointed out that this also seems to be a time period of evolutionary stasis, that you have eukaryotes appear early on in the Proterozoic, but then complex life, like multicellular complex life like animals and plants, doesn't appear until way at the end of the Proterozoic. That 
in between, during this boring billion, it looks like life was just kind of sitting around doing nothing. Mm -hmm. It was there, but there weren't big changes happening. This has been attributed, potentially, to the fact that there seems to have been consistently low oxygen. Many have pointed out that that may have been a limiter for living things. Also, that there seems to have been a lack of nutrients available. Hmm. Things like phosphorus and trace elements, the kind of things that life really thrives on in sediments, show consistently low levels throughout this time period. Okay. So we've got stable oxygen, stable climate, uh, boring life, not doing very much. And in addition to all that, the Boring Billion is notable for a seeming general lack of tectonic activity. Which is... By far the weirdest part to me. That's a weird, that there are just, it just seems like the Earth's crust wasn't doing very much that was exciting. Because like, life and climate, there can be direct connections. Definitely life responds to climate, but life can also affect climate. Absolutely. Like they can, plants terraformed our planet, you know, photosynthesizers more accurately, terraformed our planet. So if life's not doing much, it can make sense that maybe not as many changes are happening with the atmosphere. And if the climate's not doing much, it makes sense that life's not having to respond to changes. The fact that the rocky part... Yeah, that seems to have been stable. That's very weird. Now, specifically, the evidence for this comes from, again, the sediments. Notably, there are a lack of sediment and rock formations that tend to be associated with certain kinds of tectonic activity. So, for example, a number of studies have mentioned things like uh, strontium isotopes, uh, zircon deposits, gold deposits, which tend to take a certain form or show up generally while sediments are eroding off of mountaintops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you have mountain building events... Continents collide, the Earth is pushed upward into mountains, which provides a lot of rock at high elevations to be eroded and weathered by wind and water, which produces things like detrital zircons and and orogenic gold deposits, which seem to just be generally lacking and low in abundance during this billion year period. That there doesn't there just seems to not have been a lot of mountain building. At the same time, there are other rock formations that are associated with subduction zones or continental collisions besides the mountains themselves, sort of metamorphic rock formations that form when you get plates coming together, things like ophiolites, which are formations that are co- that tend to occur around subduction zones. There just it, there seems to be a lack of geologic evidence for continental and crustal movements during this time. Early on in the Proterozoic, as I mentioned, we see the formation of a supercontinent called Nuna, or Columbia, and over the course of this boring billion period, over the course of the Proterozoic, it shifts from Nuna to Rodinia, Mm -hmm. the, the supercontinent that followed it. But even though, so we've got geologic evidence, we've got paleomagnetic evidence that shows us sort of the orientation of different chunks of crust back at that time, these are classified as two different supercontinent periods. The transition from Nuna, Columbia into Rodinia happens around one and a half billion years ago in the middle here. 
But the evidence that we have seems to suggest that this wasn't a case like we think of with Pangea of everything breaking up and then everything coming back together, that it was a minor reshuffling that changed the general shape and orientation of the supercontinent Yeah. instead of a major period of breakup and reassembly. So even the transition from one supercontinent to the other was a relatively uneventful transition as these things go. Very weird. So everything from the rock cycle to the atmosphere to life seems to have just been fairly stable. And as you started pointing out, Will, uh, just a little while ago, a lot of researchers have pointed out that these things are not unrelated to each other. Tectonic activity very often will instigate changes in climate or changes in atmospheric content. When you've got mountain building, it provides a lot of surface area for weathering and erosion, which are chemical processes that can alter the amount of carbon, for example, in the atmosphere. Tectonic activity is also often associated with volcanic activity that releases all sorts of gases and can make all sorts of changes for life. So the fact that everything was stable at the same time does seem to indicate that there was some sort of feedback going on that just generally everything was kind of quiet. Yeah, if one thing's not changing and changes in that thing would have affected something else, then it makes sense that that won't affect those changes in step two, which then may not affect the changes that it would have in step three and so on and so forth. Well, and I mentioned that there seems to be a general lack of mineral nutrients available at this time. Those tend to come from weathering and erosion off of landforms. So if you have less mountain building, that can mean less nutrients available from the rocks, which can mean less productivity in life, which can mean less production of oxygen or whatever. So that this is all potentially related to each other and all in this weird billion-year period of general stasis. Which makes lots of sense to me because it's it would be almost it would be much weirder if there was just unrelated reasons for all of these things to not be active, or if only one thing was being boring. Yeah, exactly. Like that would be very weird. It makes much more sense that something caused a, a, a low level of activity in one big category that then had side effects elsewhere, or that one cause overlapped with multiple of these that then fed back like that interconnectedness seems very important because otherwise that just makes this all the more bizarre (laughs) (laughs) so if you go looking around the literature the boring billion is mentioned quite a lot and it is generally referred to as a period of geological biological and climatic stability where just things were not fluctuating a lot of earlier studies would do things like here is this geochemical signal of ore deposits or of isotopes of carbon or oxygen isotopes or iron formations or whatever, and just here is how they have shifted over the time periods that we're measuring across Earth history. And I've seen a lot of these papers that will have this graph with these fluctuating lines and then just this flat line that goes through this period of roughly two to one billion years ago. The boring billion. And it's important just to make sure everyone remembers we're talking about a billion. This is a billion. This is about two-ninths of the entirety of Earth history. Like, 
because I had the thought that it could be very easy to have the feeling at this point in the discussion of like, all right, so not a lot was happening, but like that's happened. You know, we've had other times where we've talked about area in your time periods of relative stability and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Why is this so different? A billion this are is twice as long <laughs> yes. as the time that has passed since the Cambrian explosion like, until today. Every other episode almost <laughs> in the podcast, like the, almost our entire list of subjects falls within the last half billion years. Yes. This is twice that length where almost nothing was happening seemingly. Right. And in comparison to other similar time periods yes. where you see a lot of change. Now, this raises all sorts of questions. For example, what the heck was going on and what were the effects of that? What the heck wasn't going on? What the heck wasn't going on? <laughs> But also, one of the recurring questions that has become very common, especially in more recent years, is just how boring was this time period actually? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is clearly a distinctive time period for the lack of certain major events, but it's worth pointing out that a lot of studies have issued challenges here and there to some of these signs of stability. One of the things, of course, to keep in mind is that we are talking about the Proterozoic Eon, and the farther back in time we go, the harder it is to find consistent rock records. Although, I did notice one paper that specified the middle of the Proterozoic, this roughly the time that overlaps with this boring billion, is one of the first periods of Earth history where we do actually start getting a more consistent geologic record. But there are also some signs here that uh, maybe some of this boring stuff is a little bit not as dramatic as it has uh, seemed. For example, there have been some recent, uh, some recent studies that have pointed to geochemical evidence that oxygen levels actually did fluctuate a bit, mm -hmm. and some, that, that some places they got a bit higher, that this may have been something that was fluctuating at certain times in certain places. This is not agreed upon by all. It seems like this has gone back and forth in the literature a little bit, but there has been at least indications that oxygen levels weren't quite as flat and stable as they have seemed. Some other studies have found some potential variation in other certain elements, trace elements, nutrient, things like phosphorus that have seemed to be stable otherwise. There was a study from 2020 that identified possible drop stones uh, from the later part of the Mesoproterozoic in Scotland, which would be potential evidence of glacial activity. And there have been a number of studies that have pointed to more diversity or complexity in the fossil record during this time than has been previously recognized. So none of this is to say that it wasn't an unusually stable time, but that there are certain areas where there may be more variation than has been recognized uh, previously. They may not have been as boring as some previous reports. There was also one study that I found that was looking at mineral deposits and pointed out that while their results agree that there seems to be a lack of the typical kinds of mineral deposits you see in a more tectonically active continental regime, there are major deposits of other kinds of minerals. Yeah, yeah. That because there was perhaps somewhat different tectonic activity going on than expected, it meant for, it, ma it made for great deposits of other minerals. Like they, they pointed out, for example, copper, silver, lead, I think a certain kind of diamonds, which might indicate something weird going on with the tectonics, but made for really cool mineral deposits 
which they were like, that doesn't count as boring. Like, these are really cool mineral deposits. Yep, yep. And there has even been some research that has found evidence for potentially more tectonic activity, more complexity in tectonic activity at this time. There's a study from this year that actually presented a model for a different view of what was going on at that time tectonically, which leaves room for more tectonic activity than is typically uh, inferred for this time period. So all that is to say that I have not seen a paper that seems to argue that the image of this as an unusually stable time is just completely wrong. Yeah, this was just this was not the boring billion. You know, right. com- but it, do- it, it does seem to be weirdly distinct from before and after it. But there is more and more research over over time that is pointing to areas of some variation or some fluctuation. There may have been a little bit more activity going on during this boring billion than is often recognized. I very much appreciate the uh, the mineral study because that was a thought I had. And I didn't have an example for what category it would be in, but I did have the thought of, does this just seem boring from the typical evidence we would look at for activity? Right. But are we only looking at the evidence that seem, the, the, the events and occurrences that happen to be boring during this time, were there other changes happening that we're just not looking at? You know, those mineral examples being one that there were minerals being deposited, just not the ones that we typically expect for that kind of tectonic activity. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I do think that there is an interesting thing about this period that it's called the Boring Billion because there wasn't a lot of change happening. Mm-hmm. There weren't a lot of major events, major changes happening that we tend to see in other time periods. But it's been discussed ad nauseum in the literature because it is an extremely interesting time period for that reason. Yes. That it is weird and they're like, boring is a little bit of a misnomer here. It's actually a very interesting time period. It has drawn a ton of attention to it. It was just seemingly an uneventful time period. Well, and that was the other thing that I thought early on when you were mentioning that oxygen levels seem to have been very low but stable. And that could be why life was less active in its evolution. But very low oxygen levels, that's notable to me. Like that that's mm-hmm. a, you know, a, when we have dips in oxygen levels, that would be an event typically. The fact that it stayed stable is weird, but that dip is, that's not boring. Once again, that right. that's an event. It's just <laughs> a really long one, but that is something happened. So, so far we have, I think, really hit upon this paradox in the name that boring just means stable and uneventful. It doesn't mean uninteresting. Yeah, well, and that it was also, because the, the other thing that my brain had to shift on was that the term stable, I had it in my head initially that... Everything happened before the boring billion, and then it stayed that way throughout that billion, and then things started changing in. But really, there was some shift that then was stable. You mm-hmm. know, lower oxygen, less tectonics, all that stuff. It was a unique scenario that then was stable and lasted. Right. Not just that it was a, the status quo that had been going unchanged somehow that there was something unique here yeah something changed just that 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 put things on hold seemingly exactly and so that this is not just everything beforehand just on repeat that this was a notable 
yeah. time Something period. was different. Yeah. In this time. Which, of course, raises the question of what was different at this time? What was going on at this time period that left it, that made it distinct from the time periods before and after it? After a short break, we're going to get into that discussion and we're going to talk about the two areas that I found a bunch of really interesting analysis on. We'll talk about tectonics and we'll talk about life. Stay tuned. So as we discussed, the Boring Billion is called that because of this unusual stability or seeming lack of major changes in all these different areas. And as you pointed out, the one, I agree, that seems to stand out as the the most striking one is that tectonic activity seems to have been strangely quiescent during this time. Because I can at least make connections back and forth between life and climate, but neither of those is going to affect the movement of the Earth's crust. Right. Which is the other thing that is really an interesting feature is that the tectonic activity on Earth has a dramatic influence on everything else. So it would seem to be that if one thing was the start of all this stability, if indeed one thing is the, the core cause, tectonics would be the place to look at. Because it can affect them, but they can't affect it. Now, lots of discussion has happened in the literature analyzing tectonic activity at this time. And one of the really interesting discussions that happens around this boring billion time is the implication that this might not have been a time where tectonic activity just stopped for some reason, but instead a period of time where tectonics was different. Oh, okay. That tectonic activity on Earth was in a different phase than what we see today. Yeah, that the pattern fundamentally changed somehow. Right. So like I mentioned, the breakup of the first supercontinent, Nuna Columbia, into Rodinia didn't happen the way that we tend to think of the breakup of, say, Rodinia and then leading into Pangaea and then break up again. There are numerous rock formations that show evidence of failed breakups in these ancient subcontinents, that places where they started to rift a little bit, but didn't actually fully break up. Which we do see in other places. Here where we are in North America, we are on a section of North America here in the southeastern U.S. that has an old failed rift zone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That they it just wasn't doing the normal breakup reassembly thing we think of. That the, the supercontinent into the next supercontinent was more of a rearrangement and reshuffling rather than a full breakup and reassembly. One study that I read, I think this was actually that mineral study, called it potentially an accordion-style tectonic activity. That sort of this stretching and recompressing, which they were talking about in reference to why we have all those other mineral deposits that that might have been... But lots of other studies have pointed at this time period as a potential phase of what's called single-lid tectonics. Plate tectonics, as we have today, which we discussed in episode 122, the crust of the Earth is split into this mosaic of plates 
that all interact with each other at their boundaries. They're shifting and squeezing towards each other and pulling apart. Single lid tectonics is a model of tectonics on a planet where the crust, the outer layer of the lithosphere, is mainly one shell. Whoa. That it isn't broken in to these mosaic of plates. This, according to what I've read, is what we see on a variety of other planets and moons in the solar system. That Earth is unique, as far as we know, for plate tectonics like we have today and for the last half a billion years or so, but that during this time period, there may have been a different tectonic regime active on the planet. Yeah, that instead of our surface being broken up into many uh, shifting parts, it was one surface. One surface that was adjusting in slightly different ways, so that the fact that there's evidence that there wasn't a lot of subduction going on or continental collision could be because this was a time period where that kind of stuff couldn't happen. Yeah, well, because... That the shape of the crust was different, and it didn't allow for that kind of interaction at that time. Like we explained in the, the tectonics episode, that continents move because they're moving on the conveyor belt of the shifting surface in these sections. Mm -hmm. That the movement with in each section is what causes things to move around. But if you only have one big section, you're not going to have that. You're not going to have those conveyor belts right. moving things around. And oh, that's it, so weird. <laughs> yeah, that this might have been a time of tectonic transition because it is generally considered that in the early Earth, there wasn't plate tectonics because the crust wasn't an, in a state mm -hmm. that it could support the same level of continental crust and crustal movement that we have today. Eventually, that had to transition into tectonics as we know it. This might be that time of transition. One study that I read proposed that this might have been linked. And again, this is, it sounds like, A, there's a lot of ongoing research about this. And also, B, I did not dive super deep into this topic. So this is just me skimming the mm -hmm. surface. But one study that I did read proposed that this might be linked to the cooling of the mantle. Yep. That in the early days of Earth, the mantle and the crust were too warm for it to work like tectonics, that you just didn't get that same crustal movement. You couldn't get subduction, which is when sections of the plates sink underneath other sections of crust, because it was all too warm and buoyant for that to happen. Today, that sinking of the plates, that subduction of the plates, is thought to be one of the major forces that keeps tectonic activity moving. That as they sink down into the mantle, it's pulling the plate behind it. And that's a big part of what drives tectonics. That paper proposed that this middle time period, this boring billion, might have been a time where things had cooled enough to get something like modern tectonic. You can start getting some of that activity, but not full-blown tectonic activity just yet. Yeah, that, that we had cooled enough now to have a more stable surface, mm -hmm. uh, but it hadn't yet, you know, cause, and we talked about that, the, it's thought that flows and pattern and kind the of con currents. Convection on, in the mantle, yep. That, that kind of movement in the mantle is what drives our current tectonic situation, and it could be that things had cool enough to have a nice surface, but those currents, those convections hadn't, that pattern hadn't kicked into 
break things up or something to that degree. I Right now, I'm just, my brain is in speculation mode because this is fascinating. <laughs> and there has been study on this yes. by people who know more about how tectonics works than we do. But I can absolutely see the logic of the pattern of mm-hmm. things cooling to a point that we get a surface to work with, but that the n- next step of the pattern the mantle or or the surface hasn't broken up to have the next phase. Oh, that's fascinating. So during this boring billion, there may have been either no modern tectonics or more limited modern tectonics or this transition of this period where we had this supercontinent, but not tectonic activity like we have it today that allows for that breakup and reassembly. And that this transitional period might have been why we just had basically a more contiguous surface for a while that was experiencing less tectonic activity, less major changes, which might have underlain this period of seeming stability in Earth history. That, that like, I mean, it, not, it, not to just jump on the first hypothesis, but that makes so much sense to my brain yeah, right now. It's very cool. Again, there's continuing papers coming out studying what was going on with tectonics at this time, but it seems to have potentially been a transitional period yes. in tectonics. That this, that this boring building could actually be a marker for pre-tectonic situation and today's tectonic situation. The other phenomenon on Earth at this time that receives tons of discussion in scientific studies is what was going on with life. Mm -hmm. The earliest life on Earth evolved way back uh, by the Archean. We've got life going back almost four billion years. As I mentioned, we have prokaryotic life, simple-celled life, all the way through from, from way back in the Archean all the way to today. Complex cells, eukaryotes appear early in the Proterozoic and then seemingly just wait around until later in the Proterozoic to evolve complex multicellular forms like we see in the Ediacaran. The question of why, and I've seen some articles refer to it as the time where evolution stood still. (laughs) Just nothing was happening, just waiting around for something. Which again raises the question of why, but also raises the question of if that's actually true. Yes. Now, it is worth pointing out that there has been plenty of study, especially in the last decade or so, that has pointed to evidence that there may have been more going on with life at this time than we have recognized. There have been a number of fossil findings reported, especially from what I read, in Asia and Australia, in middle Proterozoic rocks of those regions, including eukaryotic organisms, fossils of complex-celled organisms, as far back as the beginning of this boring billion time, around 1.7 billion years ago or so. This includes a variety of fossils that include multicellular forms, large forms, so things that are large enough to be measured in multiple centimeters, which is quite big for back in the Proterozoic. Some of these fossils during this time period have been identified potentially as eukaryotic algae and possibly also fungi. Some fossils from the Boring Billion have even been noted to be similar to certain Ediacaran fossils. Ooh. That there may be certain, maybe relatives or maybe just similar shapes in both body fossils and trace fossils as precursors or similar things to what we see during the Ediacaran where we actually get more complex 
animal life. Yeah, yeah, with actual body forms. Right, right. Some studies have also pointed out that the middle of the Proterozoic is also when apparently the Earth saw the highest diversity of stromatolites, which are not eukaryotic. Those are formed by bacterial mats, but a mark for diversity of life in that time period. One study from 2021 that I read was reviewing ancient soils from fossil... uh, from the rock record of China around 1.7 to 1.6 billion years ago and documented a diversity of bacterial life forms in terrestrial environments. So in the last several years, there have been a bunch of studies identifying more diversity, more complexity in eukaryotic life during this time than earlier studies reported. In fact, going back to uh, the question of names, A 2019 study reviewed a bunch of this evidence and said this was actually a bustling billion. (laughs) (laughs) That there was a lot going on. Notably, still not as bustling as later time. In the later Proterozoic, we see the Ediacaran fauna arise. We see these more larger, more complex organisms. But that there may not have been quite as nothing going on as previously reported. This fossil record, in addition to DNA studies, so as we've talked about before, we will use genetic studies of modern organisms to estimate when certain shifts in the evolutionary past, the history of those organisms happened. The fossils and DNA studies together potentially suggest certain key evolutionary innovations may have actually happened during the Boring Billion. Notably, the rise of early eukaryotes, as we mentioned, the origins of multicellularity might have happened here, the origins of sexual reproduction, actually mixing genetic material between organisms to produce offspring, and the evolution of the early precursors to major groups like animals, plants, fungi, etc. That this boring billion, while again, still not as eventful as things afterwards, might have had more going on in terms of the diversity and evolution of life than we've recognized so far. Which to me makes tons of sense. Not so much because, like, you know, surely it can't have been as boring. Because it being stable is definitely what the evidence shows. But as we often like to point out, evolution doesn't only refer to directional adaptations it also is just genetic change Mm -hmm. which is going to happen when mutations are happening and mutations just happen like as long as you're being exposed to the environment that's going to cause mutations like sunlight and and you potentially carcinogenic type things and as long as your dna is messing up every now and then you're gonna get mutations so you're still going to have evolution happening it's just you're not gonna have to be adapting to changing situations as much during this stable time. So it makes sense that we would still see changes, but maybe just not huge dramatic shifts because they're not having to respond to a sudden upheaval of their environment or their mm-hmm. hierarchy of, of organisms. So I, I, I'm not surprised we that there uh, could have been life innovations still happening. They just might not be as visually exciting as what happens shortly after. And indeed, there has been a lot of discussion about how this time period of seeming stability affected life of the time. 
the classic view is that the reason why life was seemingly relatively uneventful during this boring billion is that the conditions were tough. That low oxygen, low availability of nutrients just meant that life wasn't able to do very much. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. One of the classic suggestions is that you couldn't have gotten complex animal life, for example, during this time because oxygen levels were low. Oxygen levels were too low to support life like that. And so life had to wait until conditions changed to achieve that level of complexity. Now, there have been suggestions that the evolutionary innovations potentially going on at this time could have been happening because conditions just weren't as bad as it seemed. Like I said before, there is some evidence for fluctuating levels of oxygen in some cases, things like that. Some researchers have also pointed out that studies on modern life have found that modern animal life can be surprisingly resilient to conditions like low oxygen, especially early branches of the animal family tree like sponges can actually do shockingly well in extremely low oxygen environments. So that might not have been a major limiting factor for life during this time. It has also been suggested by some that these harsher conditions of the time might actually have been related to the changes that we see in life during this time period. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There is a 2018 paper that's that the what they, the way they phrased it is that the boring billion could have been a slingshot for complex life. It has long been suggested that life was hindered by low oxygen and low nutrient availability. They point out that in modern organisms, low nutrients, the depletion of nutrients, has shown to favor certain adaptations. In particular, they point out symbiosis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That symbiosis, the, the correlating of behavior and lifestyles between different organisms, is something that tends to come about in conditions where it's hard for those organisms to survive on their own. And the origin of eukaryotic life is thought to have come about through a symbiotic relationship of different earlier, more simple-celled forms. And indeed, that paper uh, finds evidence for shifting nutrient availability, things like phosphorus and trace element availability in the sediments, and at least their results show low nutrient availability in the early parts of the boring billion and then higher nutrients in later times, which might line up with some of those major innovations like multicellularity and complex cells early on and then more diversification of forms later on. They make the point that the stressful conditions of this time might actually have favored evolutionary innovations that led to complex cells that set the stage for more complex life later on. That was that was actually going to be my next question of, but would we not expect to see adaptations for low oxygen, low nutrient situation? Like, life's right, not right. just going to go, oh, wait, I guess we all just twiddle our thumbs. Like, no, no. Life would get good at surviving in this tough situation. And it's possible that there were conditions at the time that limited how much life was able to do, how much suitable environment there was. But papers like this have pointed out that it might not be a coincidence that these unusual conditions might be the time where we actually do see the start of major innovations, complex cells, multicellular forms, that later when conditions got better, 
took off and diversified in all sorts of ways. Yeah, and it, it could have been happening slowly because mm-hmm. this situation was not allowing life to flourish, but important changes could still have been happening over exactly. that slow, seemingly, you know, it's it's the, um uh, I've heard this comparison made for like when you're wanting to swat a fly that if you move slowly enough, the fly can't register that you're moving. Well, it's like the frog in the boiling exactly. water yeah. uh, uh, idiom. That when we glance at it, it's like it, nothing's happening. It's like, well, but when you actually step back far enough, you can see changes definitely could have been happening that end up being critical. Right. It just wasn't able to happen super fast because things were tough. And so some have pointed out that the Boring Billion might have actually been a time where important foundational changes, genetic shifts, cellular shifts were happening that later were important yes. for developing complex. So that, that like the Ediacaran and then the Cambrian explosion might not have happened the way they did if it weren't for this period of time where life got to develop these new innovations. Yeah, the adaptations they... The adaptations that happened so life could make it through this time allowed for the crazy things that happened later. Uh, it's to be the brilliant billions. The, right. This is, this is awesome. Yeah, the blooming billion. <laughs> now, uh, as I said, a lot of this uh, research, and you'll notice the times where I've mentioned years, a lot of this research has happened in the last several years. So the boring billion, the the term really seems to have come into prominence in the last couple of decades, and a lot of research is still ongoing in this time, but there does seem to be at least some good evidence that this might have been a time of tectonic transition and life transition that manifested as quietness that set the stage for the world as we know it to come afterwards. This... This makes the term kind of feel similar to me as living fossils to where that the term is noting a surprising lack of change, but could be misleading if you take it literally. Right. That if you take it, the boring billion makes it sound like nothing cool was happening, that there's no reason to pay attention to this. Possibly some very cool stuff was just stewing and preparing at that time. Precisely. Now, eventually... The Boring Billion comes to an end. As we get into sort of 800 million years ago or so, thereabouts, we see rising oxygen levels in the atmosphere and also in the oceans. We see increasing incidences of deposits, things like phosphates, things like iron deposits, things that were rare before. Shortly thereafter, we see major climate shifts as we've got the late Proterozoic snowball earth glaciations. And we see major diversification of life when we've got the Ediacaran fauna that starts showing up a little before 600 million years ago. What seems to have happened, the way that I've seen some papers describe it, is that there was a balance of sorts that was ultimately upset. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Something changed that pulled the Earth out of this period of stability. The big thing that seems to have been happening around that time at the end of the Boring Billion is that the supercontinent of Rodinia was breaking up. It could be that this marks, if again, if this was a tectonic transition period, it could be that this marks the early stages of modern tectonics and that that helped to usher in these changes that lead us to a modern style of the world. More tectonic activity would mean more of those geochemical changes 
that can contribute to nutrients availability in the waters, to changes in the atmosphere. It has also been noted, I found an entire paper about the relationship between the end of the boring billion and, and here's an old friend of ours that (laughs) we haven't gotten to talk about in a while, large igneous provinces. Okay, there we go. The breakup of Rodinia is associated with large igneous provinces because you have these rift zones where you've got tons of volcanic activity happening that are going to produce all sorts of gases and also produce new rocks that will be weathered to contribute new kinds of sediments and nutrients. There was a whole paper I found that is, did large igneous provinces break the boring billion? (laughs) (laughs) And it's possible that they were related to it as we see this breakup of Rodinia and this sort of shift to more familiar tectonics. I now want someone out there to do fan art of large igneous provinces in a luchador mask breaking the boring billion over its knee. Over their back. (laughs) Breaking the back. So basically anytime we're talking about major changes in Earth history, somewhere lurking around the corner is a large igneous province. (laughs) It has also been pointed out that since we're looking at these major changes in the environment, life affects the environment. Yep. That as life started to diversify and spread become more widespread become more complex that you may have had more things available to affect for example the atmosphere this we talked about with the great oxidation event that that periods of time in earth history where oxygen levels rise are often linked to life producing oxygen it could be for example that you have this new tectonic activity you've got large igneous provinces you've got things like that providing sediments to be eroded and weathered to create these nutrient-rich, these phosphorus-rich, things like that, regions that life can now thrive better in, and now you've got more life, which is potentially producing oxygen, and now you've got changing oxygen levels, and once you're changing the content of your atmosphere, you're going to usher in climatic shifts, and changes in atmospheric content are linked, for example, to glaciations. It could be that the tectonic changes toward the end of the Boring Billion kicked off these cascading effects that allowed all of the things to start changing again. Absolutely. However it happened, by the time we get into the late Proterozoic, the Boring Billion is officially over, and then we've got Snowball Earths, and we've got the Ediacaran Biota, and then hot on the heels of the Ediacaran Biota is the Cambrian Explosion and the Phanerozoic Eon, our time period that again, occupies most of the conversations we have here on the podcast. The point being that this weird time period that by the name it has been given, you would think is just, we skip over it. That something cool happened over here and something cool happened over here and in the middle, whatever, nothing was going on and we move on. This fascinating, boring time period may have been setting the stage for all those big changes that came later on. I also just had the thought that I'm sure, though, if you were to ask those eukaryotes living during the Boring Billion, that they'd be like, what the stable billion, chaos follows. Yeah. Everything's crazy. 
We didn't have yeah. any mass extinctions. It was nice and warm. Yeah. It was a balmy billion. There were no mass extinctions as far like this is we're doing great <laughs> during this time. You guys are having mass extinctions every few million years. So it seems to me as a person who is completely outside of these realms of research that studies the Proterozoic. I am not a geochemist. I am not an early Earth scientist. I have no idea. But it seems to me like one of the things that has been very consistent in research in the Boring Billion is scientists proposing new names <laughs> for this time period. So please submit your suggestions for alternate names for the Boring Billion. Uh, alliteration is required. Alliteration is absolutely required. Um, you are uh, you are also welcome to paraphrase famous quotes from historical figures. Uh, apparently, that is also acceptable. <laughs> Historically, that has been done. Was it was it the booming billion? The booming billion. The, the, the blooming billion. The bustling billion. The bustling billion is a good one. It's, I think I think if it's the blooming billion because of how much of the fossil evidence comes from Australia, it yes. technically has to be the blooming billion. Blooming billion, I think. Uh, it's great with sauce. I, I love. It. <laughs> uh, I I love. I'm I'm my brain is just is is so into this topic right now because I like looking at it from the various points of view of like we we. We who live in the last half billion years sure. look back and the go, good times. what a boring billion. But in truth, it's like, well, the, compared to the amount of time, that's more standard <laughs> than what's been. Like, this is actually anomalous. For, for the last billion and a half, the last two billion years, we have been unusually eventful. This has been chaotic and crazy. <laughs> And it makes it the the comparison that came to mind was star lifespans. It's like stars are very eventful when they form and very eventful when they end. But the part that we think of as it being a star is the uneventful, you know, stages. Uh, usually they have multiple of those where they will shift from like the, the main phase to then like dwarf phase. But like the eventful sections are not what we think of as being a star. Right. We think of that stagnant where it's basically just. It is technically changing, and it will eventually change enough that it explodes or collapses. But that's what we think of. If you compare the time span, that stable period is the more standardized, which is so weird to think of. Most of the history of eukaryotes took place during that time period. Yes! <laughs> and it's and it's just, from our point of view, that's odd. But from that point of view, this is a ver an overly eventful. Oh, it's that that's so cool. I love it. And I am glad and not at all surprised that it has piqued your interest in that particular regard because the one last little note that I'll make is the boring billion time period is researched not only from the perspective of understanding how things have developed here on Earth, but also of interest and comparison to potentially other bodies in the solar system and in the universe. Because if it was an important time period for the development of the planet and life on Earth as we know it, it could be informative for us trying to understand how other planets and possibly other life has developed elsewhere. I did see one paper that noted, I think it might have been an article online, that the Boring Billion is of interest in some regards to astrobiologists. Absolutely. Who are curious in, in learning how life develops complexity like we've seen it on Earth. Well, because if life does follow a similar pattern to Earth life on other planets in how it develops and evolves, 
That means if we are to spot another life-subsisting planet, statistically, we'd be more likely to catch it during its boring billion right. than it, it, during and its Cambrian. <laughs> if a boring billion, if it, if this time period was in some way important mm-hmm. for then leading into complex life as we know it, does a planet with life on it need to have some equivalent of a boring billion? Was that an important stage? So there are... All sorts of really cool questions to be asked about this somewhat misnamed, perhaps, time period in Earth history. We could riff on this uh, for quite some time, but we'll stop because we're (laughs) at the end of the episode. A big thanks to the people who requested this episode topic. This is one of those subjects that we probably would not have done an episode on if somebody hadn't suggested it and made us go, oh, that's sure. Let's look into that and find out what that is. This is a really cool subject. And we always like every now and then to dive a little deeper into early Earth stuff, which always means getting a bit more into geology and a bit more into tectonics and a bit more into early life stuff and cool topics like that. Yeah, this was fascinating. I'm so I'm so happy. This is the least appropriately named episode, perhaps, of the entire podcast. Hey, before we officially wrap everything up, we have one last thing to do, and that is a patron question. One of the goodies that patrons can get from subscribing to us on our Patreon is the ability to submit questions for us to answer right here at the end of an episode of the podcast. Will, what's today's patron question? Today we have a question from Mark, who asks, How can we estimate past population densities? I'm curious about Pleistocene freshwater turtle densities in North America. That is a very good question. How do we interpret population density from the fossil record? Now, I don't have any information for you, Mark, about Pleistocene freshwater turtles uh, in North America, unfortunately, but I do have some broader responses to this. It can be tough to interpret population sizes in the fossil record because not everything fossilizes. In some cases, where we do have really well-preserved fossil sites, we can just compare the number of fossils one-to-one, as long as we're comparing fossils that have a similar circumstance. So to use a relevant example, at the gray fossil site, many of our fossil species are preserved well and in great abundance. So to use a relevant example to the question, our freshwater turtles, we have slider turtles and painted turtles both of which lived in the pond, both of which would have fossilized under probably similar circumstances, and there has been some recent research comparing their numbers and distribution in the site to interpret what their relative populations might have looked like. That there's just a lot more slider turtles than there are painted turtles, they're found in certain areas more than the painted turtles are, that is likely to some degree a realistic indication of their relative populations at the time. This probably wouldn't work as well if we compared our pond turtles to, say, our box turtles, Mm -hmm. which are not living in the pond and therefore not being fossilized the same way. So we have to be careful about it. But you can potentially get direct population evidence from the fossils themselves. There are other ways to do it. Uh, There was that 2021 study that we talked about that estimated population sizes of Mm T-Rex, that just how many T-Rexes were there. That study looked at modern animals and assessed how various factors affect populations of modern animals. So how does body size affect population size? 
How does lifestyle? So in the case of T-Rex, they looked at top predators. So the, the size of an organism, how it lives in its ecosystem can correlate with certain aspects of population density, which may allow us to make inter- to make estimates. Yeah, a model of. Yes. Uh, there are also cases where we can use DNA. If the fossils are young enough, like perhaps your Pleistocene freshwater turtles, we can get genetic information. And if we get enough, there are certain signals in DNA that can give us an indication of population size. Of genetic diversity can give us a sense of how population size has changed over time. And one last example, I did a quick Google uh, search to find what other studies there have been. There was a study in 2020 that looked at the burrows of certain modern-day sea urchins and found a correlation between the burrow, the size of the burrows and the density of the population. Okay. The, the burrows got smaller the more densely populated the area was with urchins. And then they compared that with fossil sites, with traces, with urchin burrow traces, to then try to make interpretations about population density with those urchins. So there can be correlations, apparently, in trace fossils that can give us indications of of how population density was in the past. So there are a handful of different potential ways to do it. Those are just a few examples. Usually it involves finding some feature of modern animals that lines up with population. That's even what the DNA is, is looking for features in the DNA that correlate with certain population densities. Yeah, it's it's a tough scenario when we can't just count, actually, because the fossil record will never preserve everyone who was there Mm -hmm. but that makes sense from one standpoint and that is also not how we find modern day population densities because you can never count every animal in a forest right so we always are having to do some amount of estimation and prediction to get population densities Uh, i mean it's senses you know human population Mm -hmm. is also done in that way where you're never going to get every single person to turn back in a census Because some people are going to throw it away. (laughs) They're just not going to. But you can get a decent estimate. And so, yeah, we can use those similar steps with fossil records. The urchins one, I did not know. And that is delightful. Yeah, that burrow size correlates with population size. Very cool correlation that we get from looking at modern day animals. And I wouldn't be surprised if we could find other similar kind of connections with other life forms sure sure and they probably have mm -hmm. that that was the one example along those lines that i happened to come across there's probably a bunch of others yeah neat good question mark thank you for asking that question and thank you for supporting us thank you to all of our patrons who support us on patreon and help us to continue our podcast our science communication efforts hey you listener if you'd like to support us please consider doing so on patreon Right now would actually be a great time to join the Patreon because we are coming up on Croc and Snake Month, which is going to have all sorts of cool additional things going on. Stay tuned for more details on that. And otherwise, we encourage you to get involved and participate and join us in all the usual ways. Hop down to the episode description and find links to our social media. Find the link to our Discord server. Find the link to our Patreon, other ways you can support us making donations, signing up for that Audible 30-day free trial that helps to support what we're doing and gets you some books, all sorts of cool stuff like that. Thank you once again to this episode's requesters, to our new patrons, to our old patrons. 
and to you for listening. Yeah. As always. Get in those uh, comment, those various comment sections and let us know your new names for the Boring Billions. For the Boring Billions. Bo- boring Billion. The better, the better Billions. Yes. Something better than that. <laughs> we release episodes every fortnight. Uh, hey, our next episode is episode 165. That ends in a five. It ends in a five, which means Allie's coming back to talk about plants. Should be pretty cool. Yeah, I'm excited for that. And I am excited to just keep thinking about this weird section of Earth history. The bewildering billion. It's, it's oh. The bamboozling billion. I am so stuck on the the aspect that this could be a, a representative of a phase of Earth's life cycle. And that makes me so happy. The the mind blowing billion doesn't quite fit, but no, that I, doesn't count. But I like it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep thinking on it. You keep thinking on it too. The Bois billion. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.